Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're live and nationwide, worldwide, thanks to our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you are a meeting planner or maybe you're a platform speaker, these in-person events are beginning to come back. You can find one another at SpeakerMatch.com. Folks are downloading and subscribing to the Big Time Talker at uh, everywhere you can get podcasts these days. It's SpreakerPodcast.com. Uh, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you download your podcast. We thank you for listening. Today, we're talking UFOs and mysteries and books, just in time to curl up in the wintertime in front of the fireplace and get a great read. Uh, Azalea Bluff is the book in question. The author is the award-winning Dennis Hetzel, and he joins us on the Big Time Talker. Hey, Dennis, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, Burke. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. This book, Azalea Bluff, um, has to do with UFOs and unexplained mysteries, but it also has to do with something that's near and dear to your heart, uh, because the, the, the character in this book, um, a young lady, Olivia, is a young reporter. You, at one point in your life, were also a young reporter. So let's start there. Let's rewind back to the beginning and how you got started in the journalism game. Well, I'm now neither young nor a reporter, but (laughs) (laughs) journalism was always in my blood. Um, And also, the other reason it's kind of close to my heart is when I imagined Olivia as a young journalist, you know, going through what a lot of young journalists uh, go through today. She's also about the same age as my daughter, who's not a journalist. She's an English as a second language teacher. But I kept imagining um, Lindsay as a journalist, and it kind of helped me... uh, create the character. I actually used a lot of really talented women authors and other women I knew to, um, to help Olivia feel authentic. So um, my, I'm trying to, my short uh, version of my uh, life story is I was sucked as a right fielder. I uh, couldn't hit a curve, but I could write. So when I was 15, I convinced the editor of my weekly paper and Hoffman Estates, Illinois, outside Chicago, where I grew up, to pay me, I think it was about 20 cents in column inch to uh, write about high school sports. Unfortunately, my high school team won the conference title my senior year, so that was helpful. Went on to college at Western Illinois. I was actually going to be a teacher. Journalism was sort of my plan B. Uh, We could do a whole podcast on being a college newspaper editor in the early 70s in the Vietnam era. and after I got out of school, I really I couldn't find a teaching job. Uh, so I took a job as a sports editor for two weeklies near where I grew up in uh, in Barrington, Illinois. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And I, I went on to uh, be a, a, a news reporter in uh, Galesburg, Illinois, Racine, Wisconsin. Then I started to move up the ladder. I was managing editor of the Capital Times in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, then uh, editor and publisher of the, the Daily York Daily Record in Pennsylvania for 13 years and I was at the Cincinnati Enquirer and then I got to spend a really interesting eight years uh, as director of the Ohio News Media Association in Columbus, Ohio, the trade association for the now beleaguered newspaper industry and I was a lobbyist those eight years so besides being a sports fan I've always been a political junkie which probably explains why my first two novels were (laughs) blending sports and politics into kind of a unusual stew, I guess I would, I would say. So this new book, Azalea Bluff, is uh, quite, a, quite a departure uh, from uh, the themes of the, the first two. 
Dennis Hetzel, our guest today, Azalea Bluff is the book, and uh, it's all about this this UFO, and it sort of has a, a great retro feel that you know crashes down in this little beach town in the, in the Carolinas, and uh, and mayhem ensues <laughs> with right. a young newspaper reporter. Uh, so Dennis, and, and that was a great sort of synopsis of of how a young reporter kind of moves through his career and, and works his way up. And you alluded to it a little bit that the news industry has, has changed an awful lot. The journalism industry, specifically in terms of newspapers, uh, has changed an awful lot in the last 10 years or so with, with an awful lot of mom and pop newspapers going away completely. Small town papers that were dailies or weeklies or have completely gone online. How does all this play out for newspapers and and, you know, put your Dennis Hetzel crystal ball to work. You know, will there be newspapers in 10 years? I don't think there will be very many physical daily newspapers in 10 years. I think there will be a lot of local news outlets still. Uh, and some of them are going to be very good. Some of them will be online only. A lot of them may be online only. I think if I was starting a paper from scratch today, I use the word quotations around the word paper, I would probably look at something like having a Saturday or Sunday, maybe even a free circulation physical paper, and then just be online uh, six days a week. What people don't really understand is how broken the business model is. And, it, you know, and uh, the local advertising model is broken. And I used to do a little Rotary Club talk when I, um, was in Columbus on the subject to help people understand it's not, you know, we can talk about the political enemy of the people noise too, which is a whole nother problem with half the country no longer, you know, thinking local journalism is, is credible. You know, it's a significant problem, but just from a business model perspective, you know, it's part of a larger picture to some extent, the industry has been its own worst enemy. I mean, for sure. And not anticipating things like Craigslist, for example, which destroyed classified advertising. But I always use the example of, you know, think about, you know, your local auto dealer. Uh, in most communities of any size used to be six, seven, eight different car dealers, and they were all owned by different people. And they competed with each other. They also sponsored little league teams. And, you know, they all advertised in the local paper. It was the, as a category, they probably were the local papers first, second or third, you know, top ever segment. In most of those same communities today, uh, there might be one or two auto dealers, two people that own all the auto dealerships in town. And they've got to be on their own social media. They got to be on cars.com. They've got to be on auto trader. They've got to, they're basically content providers on their own websites. So, you know, not only have they consolidated to the point where they don't advertise as much in traditional media, uh, they've also got their pie being carved up in a zillion different ways in terms of marketing. And of course, right now they don't even have cars on their lot, which is a whole other subject. So that that's a huge category loss. And then you think about Sears and you think about pennies and you think about how much the grocery stores used to advertise. You think about real estate moving from classified advertising to Zillow and realtor.com and on and on and on and on. So the classic, uh, local news business model in which local advertisers were probably paying 70 to 80 percent of the uh, of the expense of of having that newsroom with all those people that covered all those meetings and all the soccer games and football games and got all those awards and honorals in the paper and all that stuff 
um, that's all dissipating. So uh, it's a it's a huge problem on top of the you know the political garbage that that's going on. And I think um, I could go on and on about that too. But I would just say, you know, forgetting you know we're talking about local media here, you know, and forget the the Washington noise. Um, I think most people, if they could be in a newsroom and saw how seriously almost all reporters take getting things right, uh, they would be pleasantly surprised and, and feel a little better about that if they have concerns about, about the media. We're certainly not, not without sin, but um, people try pretty darn hard to, uh, to do a good job. Dennis Hetzel is a former newspaper journalist and the author of the brand new book, Azalea Bluff, also available as an audio book at amazon.com. And uh, you can pick up Azalea Bluff bookstores everywhere and get an autographed copy at headlinebooks.com the publisher of Azalea Bluff and Dennis's previous two books, Killing the Curse and Season of Lies, which are sort of political sports thrillers. And uh, we'll talk more about uh, the newspaper business in a minute uh, and the media, because they, you know, that's a hot topic now, fake news, but, but nothing speaks to a young man's heart quite like UFOs do. And you've got a pretty interesting story here um, in that. I think it blends these, these elements of, of sort of retro UFO stories with this background you have as a journalist. So to kind of lay it all out here, this, this UFO uh, object type thing uh, crashes on a football field in this little town in the Carolinas. And this young reporter uh, is there uh, in that town because she's essentially run out of dough. I mean, she's living hand to mouth. And I think I recall correctly living in her parents' house when all this yep. happens. Yep. Um, and then, you know, she sees this happen and then it goes really sideways and becomes sort of a, a father-son story where he's trying to figure out what happened. So, so walk us through the germ of where this story came from, because I think yeah. that's really interesting too, Dennis, because it, it came from like an old school radio drama, right? Right. The backstory of this book is maybe as interesting as the book itself. And yeah. I, love, I love telling the story. Uh, about how Azalea Bluff came to be, and and you're right. When I when I got done finishing it, and then I'll circle back on the on the backstory in a second. Uh, and this happens to me in every book I write. Is I don't really realize what I was really writing about in my heart till I get done. And I realized after the fir the first two books, what they're really about is the price you pay to succeed at the highest levels of sports and politics. Those very visible public jobs, you know, the choices that people make and have to make and the sacrifices and compromises. And what this book really is, I hope it's just a good thriller, obviously, but it's also really about the relationship between a father and a daughter, as, as you alluded to. And it's about Olivia Clavin and her dad, Jim, and his search to try to get answers and also about, about their relationship and the relationships in their family. But anyway, um, so I was at the Charlotte uh, Christmas show, which, as you know, is a huge event uh, every year. It was canceled for the pandemic last year, unfortunately, but we were back in action this year. So a few years ago, I was at the Headline Books booth in the at the Charlotte Christmas show, and this guy with this deep radio voice, sort of like yours, Burke, uh, yeah. stops, by, stops by the booth. And, you know, I've been around a lot of broadcasters in my career, obviously, and I kind of thought right away, this guy might be in radio. And it was, his name was Ed Galloway. And Ed bought my two books. 
And uh, so, you know, he said, I, I've done this. Uh, I got this old school radio drama called Incident in Mint Hill. And, and, and Ed, as you know, was a real kind of broadcasting legend, especially in the Southeast. He had been on radio. He had done Bojangles commercials. He'd been on the Discovery Channel. He was known as the man of a thousand voices, did tons of voiceover work. And uh, I think you can still hear his voice on some on car ads in, in West Virginia. So anyway, added in this old school radio drama with, you know, like, like our parents listened to with sound effects and different characters and so on and so forth. Uh, and he was a UFO buff. And he said, I've always wanted to know, uh, find somebody who could like turn this little two CD, you know, radio story into a full fledged, full blown novel. And I was being polite, you know, to be honest, because he bought my two books and I said, well, I'll give it a listen. So, you know, give me the CDs. And he sent me the CDs and I listened and it was pretty good. Uh, my wife and I both listened to it and we liked it and I saw a lot of possibilities in it. So I said, yeah, let's take it on as a project. And uh, Ed and I did kind of the digital equivalent of a handshake deal. Uh, and um, I changed a lot. He, the, 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 the foundation of the plot is there. The basics of the plot are all there, but I, I moved it from the Charlotte suburb of Mint Hill to a Carolina beach town near where I live. Also, I just thought it would be more fun to have the story unfold in a beach town. The main character went from a kind of a boomer aged, uh, almost retired female journalist to a millennial aged journalist. And again, I, I watched that. I watched a lot of young journalists go through some of the career challenges that Olivia uh, has gone through in the book. Um, and the, some of the characters became a lot more important, like the sheriff. I actually spent some time with the, the real world sheriff in Brunswick County, North Carolina, uh, a very fast growing county between Myrtle Beach and Wilmington, where I live. He gave me some insight and uh, some of his challenges. And I want to I want to point out very clearly that my fictional sheriff, who definitely has some baggage, is is uh, fictional and is not supposed to be mistaken for Sheriff Ingram in Brunswick County, who's a who's a great guy and a really uh, a real pro as a law enforcement uh, leader. Um, and I also had to do a lot of research to flesh out the story, because, again, as you know, you know, when you're talking about radio, TV, movie, it's a different medium. And, um, you know, you do scenes, but you don't do a lot of dialogue. You don't flesh out stories, you know, as much. You just don't have the time. Right. Um, and a lot, Ed being, Ed was not only a UFO buff, the backstories in Azalea Bluff and what, what happens to Olivia when she disappears after she walks through this swampy field to see what crashed onto the high school, it's a high school football field that's all sealed off. The backstory, without giving too much away, involves not only UFOs, but a lot of the secret research that the Nazis were doing at the end of World War II. And I was a little skeptical about some of the stuff that Ed had that he claimed was true uh, in in the uh, in the radio in the radio drama, uh, but as the more research I did, it was kind of pretty eye opening. Uh, some of this, you know, it seems like X Files stuff, but some of this stuff is um, really fascinating. And I did a I did a lot of research to, you know, flesh out some of the. Uh, the incidents that form the backstory of uh, what really happened to, happens to Olivia Clavin and Azalea Bluff. The uh, sad epilogue, uh, just to tie this off, um, mm -hmm. is I was getting near 
the end, I had a, an early draft done and I emailed Ed one day um, to say, hey, the, the draft's almost done. Uh, I'll be anxious for you to read it and see what you think. Um, I didn't hear back. Uh, the next day, I still, I'll never forget this. I was on the treadmill uh, in the fitness center at the Jewish Community Center in Bexley, Ohio. And uh, my phone rings and it was Carolyn Galloway, Ed's, uh, Ed's wife, who said Ed had passed away of a heart attack. Oh. totally unexpectedly um and carolyn obviously was just shattered uh she's a wonderful person she's a very successful interior designer in, in the charlotte area but she agreed pretty quickly that you know she wanted the project to continue and so uh azalea bluff has become not just you know an interesting hopefully good thriller based on, you know, Ed's uh, radio drama, it's really a tribute to Ed. And um, we were able, we actually went to Mint Hill for a launch party at the Hill Bar and Grill, which is where Ed hung out with his golf buddies and um, is still in the book, by the way, there's a scene in the Hill Bar and Grill. And I got to meet some of Ed's friends and uh, signed, and Carolyn and I signed some books. So it's really um, a tribute, it's a tribute to Ed. And who, by all accounts, I only got to meet him in person once and talk to him on the phone and email a few times. And uh, it's one of my regrets that I didn't get to know this really cool guy, but even better than I, than I did. Ed Galloway uh, gets credit on the cover of Azalea Bluff, the brand new book from Dennis Hetzel. And if you happen to be listening in the Carolinas, you certainly have heard Ed Galloway's voice on, on radio and, uh, and TV commercials and all that for many, many years. Um, so journalist in, in this, this uh, character, Olivia, in the book is, is a young cub reporter, if you will, um, are accused more than ever these days of just making stuff up. Well, you're a novelist, and that indeed is what you do now. You just make stuff up. Um, do you think that the journalists get a bad rap for that, whether they're on TV, on the radio, and newspapers? To, well, to, well know, first of all, news? You know, in all, in all the years that I was managing newsrooms as well as as a young reporter, I, you know, I can recall one incident and I did let a young sports reporter go when I ran the York Daily Record in Pennsylvania for making something up. It's actually a pretty interesting story. He was doing a, a feature on Penn State football before the, the season opened. And he was recounting some famous game that Penn State played and won. And I don't remember the year or anything, but the kicker kicked this, this field goal. And he quoted the guy as saying he ran around, um, ran, ran around. I can't remember. It was ran around like an insane, an insane nutbag or something like that. I, huh. I can't remember the exact quote. It was a good quote. It was in the middle of the story. And uh, later the guy, the guy quoted, called me and he said, um, you know, I, I hesitate about calling you, but I just thought you'd want to know. I didn't say that. He said, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. He was either a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist. So I don't want to be accused of fake news because I'm going by memory. The gist of this story is correct. I might have a couple of facts wrong because it was quite a while ago, but I wouldn't, but the point being, he was, he was a, a, a mental health professional and he would, so never, he would never use that term, he would never use that terminology. So we brought the young man in, he was still on his, on his probationary period and uh, he admitted he made it up. And uh, I said, you know, why it wasn't even in the lead of your story. I mean, it just, 
you know, I said, well, I just thought I would jazz it up a little bit. And he realized, you know, he realized he'd made a huge mistake, but we let him go. My larger point here, that's one, the only time that's happened in the whatever 30 or 40 years I spent in newsrooms, actually going back to college in, in the early 70s. I just, you know, reporters have biases and, you know, we used to do a lot of training in my newsrooms about how to recognize your biases. And a lot of it happens in how you frame a story. What do you, how do you open with headline writing is a whole nother art uh, that reporters aren't necessarily responsible for. Uh, it's an art and a science to be fair and interesting and not pull things out of proportion. But a there's a lot of work that goes on in traditional solid journalism i'm talking i'm not talking about any of the cable news stations which basically to me are entertainment and shameful entertainment in some respects um dennis do but but people understand that though you do you were yeah. a reporter and you're a pub publisher and editor for years can they tell the difference you think uh, you know at large the average joe or joanne who's watching fox news or on the other side cnn or msnbc can they make the difference out between uh, opinion shows and and well, you know news anchors well, clearly a lot of people don't because, uh, you know, the critical thinking skills to separate fact from opinion and to understand when entertainment uh, is entertainment and not news seem to be lacking. But you also, you know, the, the, these, these cable networks are being run by master propagandists and Fox, in my opinion, just does it the best, uh, you know, and I'm sorry if that sounds partisan, but they're master propagandists. And so, you know, if you if you understand the techniques of propaganda and social media, which I'm not I don't think is as political as much as it's just they're trying to keep you angry and pissed off and, you know, engaged. And they know that if you're angry, you're going to be more engaged and stay on longer and be a target for their advertising longer. Uh, you know, if you understand the techniques of propaganda, what's going on on these cable news stations is just classic stuff. Uh, but, you know, if you're just trying a typical person trying to live your life, you're not thinking about journalism ethics or, you know, um, you know, what makes something newsworthy, which is another talk I, I do to help I've done to help newsrooms understand, you know, why, why just because there's conflict, it doesn't necessarily mean it's news, you know, um, you know, you're just trying to live your life and you want to turn on Fox or CNN or whatever, uh, for a few minutes and, you know, you're just soaking this stuff up. And one of our political parties, the Republicans, has made demonizing the media uh, part of their playbook going back to Nixon, you know, and, uh, and uh, again, I apologize if that sounds partisan, but that's just a fact that, you know, demonizing the, me the, the media has worked for Republicans for, for going on decades. And so, uh, that said, there are liberal biases in, in a lot of newsrooms, and uh, we all have biases, and journalists are supposed to be trained to recognize those biases and keep them out of their, their news stories. And uh, there has been some slippage, but one, you know, uh, and it's harder than ever because the staffs are smaller. Uh, the young reporters don't have the resources I had, the mentors and the role models. Their editor might be three counties away in some of these smaller communities. Uh, so they're not getting the the, ad, the quality of editing, maybe that, that I was fortunate enough to get from older, wiser heads when I thought I had all the answers, but wasn't even close. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's just so much going on. 
but I just, but there's a lot of effort going on too, to figure this stuff out uh, because it's not just an internal problem. If you think about the town where you live, wherever you're listening to this, if you don't have a local media outlet that's credible, that's keeping an eye on the school board and going to the high school soccer games and doing all the stuff that, you know, good local newspapers always did, uh, your community is, is not stronger. Um, and, and there's going to be more mischief. There's going to be uh, more bad stuff going on. And a lot of the community's achievements and achievements and accomplishments are never, aren't going to get recognized either. And, uh, you know, people forget about what an important role great community newspapers have played in being part of the glue of these, these local communities. And uh, that glue is gone. You know, ask Amazon to sponsor your, high, your, your uh, kid's little league team and see, see if you can uh, get through to anybody on that. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about what happens when there's only one car dealer left and what happens when, you know, everything, you know, um, the local small business has is, is disappeared. Uh, so, you know, it's part of a much larger puzzle that it's not just about the media, it's about, you know, the glue that holds our, our communities together. We're talking about journalism and ethics and UFOs as well with uh, Azalea Bluff, author Dennis Hetzel. The book is out now from Headline Books. Audio book is available too. And if, uh, if you're a fan of the X-Files type stories, pick up Azalea Bluff at a bookstore near you or order it online at Amazon.com. The aforementioned evil Amazon.com yeah. uh, or at HeadlineBooks.com. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me ask you. I hope I don't get banned from Amazon for that. I crap. think we've but already stepped in it in that case. <laughs> but they're not in a position to do that. I mean, you know, and you, you wouldn't expect them to do that. You know, they're going to be corporate citizens in Seattle where their headquarters are. But, you know. It, well, and, and I think you bring up a good point, too. You know, I'm based in Washington, D.C., and we have a big old newspaper here, the Washington Post. And uh, and it gets, you know, lots of swings taken at it by uh, by conservatives, as does the New York Times. But I think what you're really saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Dennis, but you're advocating sort of for the little guy, for the, the hometown newspaper in Topeka, Kansas, or Pig Knuckle, Arkansas, or Broken yeah. Balls, Montana. Those are the ones that if they go away, uh, we're all in deep doo-doo. Yeah, there's also a really good story that... Um was political maybe might have been the post had this week i can't remember the outlet i could look it up about how many of these important national stories that became stories that became important national stories started with a local reporter who you know kept asking questions the the arbory trial down in brunswick georgia is a perfect example there was one basically one local reporter as i understand it from my reading in brunswick georgia who kept asking questions about it. Not a big and, town. And that, and that, that, that probing, uh, along with, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, one of the defendants thinking it was smart to give this video to a radio station yeah. <laughs> is, is yeah. why, is why this wasn't just covered up and, and brushed aside. I mean, the prosecutorial misconduct in that case is, uh, early on until it got to the, the prosecutor who eventually prosecuted the case in Atlanta is that's stunning. And that's the kind of story. I mean, I remember as a young reporter in Galesburg, Illinois, you know, sneak, going out at night, you know, the chief deputy had been busted, you know, arrested for drunk driving. And this was in little in Knox County, Illinois. And uh, they were covering it up. 
uh, and you know, we found the 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 act the, the squad car that had been in the accident locked in a in a in a locked uh, gate gated uh, parking lot. You know, two towns over from Galesburg. You know, I remember finding that at nine o'clock. I mean, that's what that's what reporters do. Uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell Epstein stuff started because of reporting at the Miami Herald, not the not the New York Times or the Post. So. Um, and there's also just the kind of less interesting, it's not never wins Pulitzer Prizes, just the watchdog role. I remember, you know, when I was a young reporter in the Chicago suburbs, I'd, I covered the Sleepy Hollow town board. There was a town called Sleepy Hollow in northwest, in the northwest suburbs. And I was usually the only one at the meeting. And they were spending tons of money on like road projects and stuff. Not They weren't corrupt but it just needed to be reported what they were doing and they would look at me in the meetings and go uh dennis don't report this okay and i'd go uh i kind of have to you know <laughs> you know if you go in executive session that's different but you know this is just the stuff reporters do and you know uh, new york we got we covered all the swim meets and the the Rotary Club Awards, and I could tell so many stories. You know, people don't remember all the positive stuff. It's just human nature. You know, you want to read about the planes that crash, not the ones that that land safely today at JFK or whatever. But um, you know, I, we just don't get enough credit for for that community glue thing I was just talking about. So it it it's frustrating. <laughs> it gets a little frustrating sometimes. I hear it in your voice. Dennis Hetzel is our guest today. <laughs> Longtime journalist and now a novelist. His third book is called Azalea Bluff. As a journalist, even though this is a story that you somewhat extrapolated from this, this radio drama, sort of a war of the worlds thing. As a journalist, though, when you look at, at these stories of extraterrestrials uh, and, and UFOs specifically, making mainstream media news like they did in 2021. This was not tinfoil hat weekly world news bat boy stuff. This is covered in the big newspapers and uh, on TV. What did you think about all that? Are you a skeptic? Are you a believer in UFOs? Where do you fall on the whole thing? Well, the first thing was I thought it was great that UFOs were in the, in the news, in the mainstream media with the government admitting that they really don't know a lot and that these they don't have answers to some of these incidents. I thought it was great timing when I have a book coming out involving a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, Ed was a true believer. Carolyn would tell you that is uh, his widow. Um, they even would joke. I think she told the story about they'd all put tinfoil hats on sometimes at some of their, their <laughs> You know, they didn't, they, they took the subject seriously, but not themselves too seriously, which is a, a good, uh, attitude for anybody to take yep and um you know um i'll tell you what because because of the research i had to do for this book i I was pretty eye-opening Werner von braun um who's in the in the book you know the the father one of the fathers of the you know the moon launch program was part of something I i actually was surprised i had never heard about specifically called operation paperclip and uh, this was at the end of World War II, as a lot of people know, the Soviets and the U.S., you know, they were only allies out of convenience. It was pretty obvious to everybody they were, we were going to be enemies uh, once, you know, the fighting stopped at the end of World War II. And there was this huge effort on both sides to get the captured Nazi scientists under their wing. We didn't want them. We didn't want the Soviets to get them. And we wanted them. 
And uh, Von Braun was one of the ones that we we got uh, obviously on our side. And he made a lot of, you know, that are documented really enigmatic statements about the, um, the help the Nazis had, quote unquote, we had help, you know. And uh, the Nazis were ahead of us in rocketry and, and they had a base in Antarctica, which is mentioned in the book. And that's true. And the most fascinating character who, that Ed, was in Ed's original story that I did a lot of homework on was a guy named Hans Kammler, who was on Hitler's right hand. And he knew everything that was going on in terms of the Nazis' uh, scientific research and the stories about about the effort, the all-on effort in Operation Paperclip, he was one of the ones that they really wanted to find. And if you read about Kamler, he either <laughs> he either killed himself, either was killed, or the U.S. captured him and he died in captivity in the U.S. And we don't real. No, there's never been anything publicly, you know, documented about what happened to Hans Kamler. And, and at the end of World War II. So he's in the story. And then, you know, uh, there was the rock band, the Foo Fighters. If in case you're wondering where did the name the Foo Fighters come, came from, this is one of the fun facts I learned. So at the end of World War II, um, there were a lot of UFO incidents that, uh, observed by Allied pilots from South America up into Europe, uh, into Eastern Europe. And um, one of the popular comics of the good old days was, was called um, Smokey Stover. And Smokey Stover, uh, only our grandparents or great-grandparents probably would remember Smokey Stover. I only know this because I was you know, a newspaper editor who bought comics from syndicates. But uh, <laughs> one of Smokey's uh, uh, sayings was something, you know, where there's, where there's food, there's a fight or something like that. So uh, the, 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 these pilots chasing these UFOs were called Foo Fighters. So when uh, Dave Grohl uh, founded the Foo Fighters, I guess is a bit of a UFO buff. And so that's where the name of the rock band uh, Foo Fighters came from. <laughs> I had no idea. See, I'm, so, this is educational and right. entertaining. Exactly. Today. Exactly. We could be on NPR. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> so did you find after doing your research for the book that you are uh, more of a believer now than before? Or are you more skeptical? Where do you, where do you well, land on it? You know, um, I'm more of a skeptic about the point that the government knows, has to know more than they've told us. Uh, just because I did the research for the book, I'd love to know what really happened to Hans Kammler, uh, whether he was, if he was in U.S. custody, that would be, and we pumped him for what he knew, it'd be fascinating. And the Nazis were doing research that this is documented stuff into strange fluids and anti-gravity stuff so you know some of the stuff is is documented and uh you know do we know what you know they had in their underground laboratories and so forth so that kind of opened my eyes but you know i've always loved science fiction uh you know there's the foundation series now on apple tv and those foundation books where i i read and reread them multiple times as a teenager and a young adult dune um you know stranger in a strange land i mean all that you know so i've always been a fan of uh good science fiction uh up to today where you know andy weir the the guy who wrote the martian is probably one of my you know favorite favorite authors so um i'm open 
you know, I'm certainly open to the subject. I have, I have, I mean, I absolutely believe there's more, there's other intelligent life out there, whether I'm not sure we have enough intelligent life here some days, but, um, you know, uh, whether they visited us or not, uh, that I'm not so sure we know that or that I'm, I know that for sure. Would, uh, would you say as, as you sort of look at, at this whole phenomenon that, uh, as far as, is you know, the, the stories of, uh, the Martian, for example, or, or any of the, the science fiction authors, the greats, uh, Ray Bradbury, for example, mm-hmm. that the, the characters are as important or more important than the story. Is that why we're really drawn to great science fiction? It's got to be about the people, right? Well, you know, there's, an, there's a saying in journalism, too, although fiction writing is a much different genre because the techniques are different are very different in a lot of ways like dialogue drives them more but great stories are always about people you know if you don't care what happens to paul atreides in dune or you're not curious about harry selden and foundation although asimov's stuff uh he's you know he 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 probably wasn't the master of you know rich character development some of his characters are pretty cardboardy but his plots and ideas are just so so interesting that transcends that so he's probably not a great example but you look at you know like the martian i mean we, we care what happens to mark watney uh and he's such a fat interesting character like let's <laughs> let's do some silent do some science um you know so yeah great stories need to be about people and i and i think the the transcendent books even you know really good thrillers don't just don't just have cardboard cheesy characters you know you're not you can only get so far if you're doing rambo you know uh you know you don't care about john rambo yeah i mean you do care but eventually it's the same movie just over and over you know we care a lot more about jack ryan or jack ryan jr just because they're they're richer more interesting characters yeah or maybe in the first uh, the first of any of those series um and and uh, a question that that uh, I always ask authors who write about someone who is so different than themselves. Olivia uh, Clavin is a journalist. She's also a young woman. You are not either young nor a woman. So how do yes. you get into her head? Is it because of your daughter? Is it how, how well, did you find the voice to make it credible? Well, first of all, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to try to write a book about with a millennial female as the main character. It, it, Michael Conley. Uh, who's one of my real, you know, current author heroes, uh, the great police procedural writer, Harry Bosch. You know, he's doing that now with Renee Ballard, uh, who's, you know, Harry's getting pretty long in the tooth. So he's trying to develop the young female detective, Renee Ballard, and uh, doing a really good job. I, I don't know how Conley does it. I can tell you in my case, uh, certainly as a, you know, older boomer male uh, I don't, who's been married a long time, I don't always presume to understand, uh, you know, everything that women think and do. I mean, I think that's uh, one thing most men learn as they get older. And I wanted Olivia to have an authentic voice. So what I did very, um, in a very targeted way, I sought out bright women I knew and trusted, including some really talented female authors uh, like Stephanie Story and Cheryl Reed, uh, for example, uh, Carol Costello, who was an anchor on CNN for, for many years. Uh, and then people like my daughter's age 
and just um, I had a lot of female draft readers uh, to say, you know, is Olivia's voice authentic? Is this something that, you know, a bright young woman like Olivia would say here? And a couple, there were a couple of spots where the feedback I got was really important. Like, yeah, Olivia would be concerned about this here, but she wouldn't say it that way. So, you know, draft to me in this book, draft readers are even um, more important than usual for that, for that reason. Dennis Hetzel is our guest today. And before we wrap up, I wonder, you know, in an ideal world, what, what do you want to happen with Azalea Bluff? What do you want readers to take away from this book? Where would you like to see it go? Um, I'd like it, you know, kind of at the, the uh, 5,000 foot level to, uh, you know, spark more some curiosity. Maybe people should go, will go to Wikipedia or other, other resources to learn a little bit more about Hans Klammer and Werner von Braun and, you know, some of the things that, that really happened. I think uh, the, there's, a, there's a scene in the book also at a Nazi concentration camp in Ebensee, Austria. And, you know, in the lessons from the end of World War II, uh, we, we should never stop learning those lessons. I mean, you know, uh, in an era where Holocaust deniers are getting new traction, which is just disgusting. That also gets into, I, you know, we could go off down the media rabbit hole again. You know, you know, one of the challenges for the media, I'll just try to say this quickly, Burke. Um, when you're in a world, you're kind of brought up in journalism as there's two sides to every story. It's a cliche. And it's an right. important, it's an important value that there's two sides. But 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 recent years have just brought to the forefront the notion that what do you do? When you know, I mean, you absolutely know one side is lying, just lying, or you know that the story doesn't have two sides. Like the Holocaust happened. I shouldn't have to give, I would argue, I don't have to give equal time to a Holocaust denier if I'm writing about the Holocaust, because it really, like it really happened, okay? Doesn't mean I should know, I should totally ignore Holocaust deniers, because they that's it's important for us to know they're out there. And what they're thinking, but you know, we we are. I've never imagined I would live in a time where we'd be looking at these extraordinary circumstances where politicians don't even care if they even have a germ of truth in what they're saying. You know, political lying used to at least have a germ of something. It might be out of context. It might be sensationalized, but there was a germ of something. You know, now it's just you know uh, coming on a. Coming on a whole cloth. So, you know, that's, that's a real issue. Um, so that's that. But on a, on a smaller level, I, I really treasure the readers in all my books who say, gosh, I really like those characters. They were rich and interesting. And then that one scene where they were sitting in the kitchen and talking or whatever, boy, it just made me think of my, my own childhood and my own relationship with my mom or whatever. And um, I think Ozelia Bluff is a really good father-daughter relationship story. And I, and I hope um, it's enriching for people, um, you know, to kind of get to know those characters and, you know, think about how, you know, the, the, the tension that develops between Jim Clavin and his wife and how he, how he kind of has to get pushed out of his kind of privileged upper middle-class bubble to deal with what's going his daughter's disappearance. Um, I hope that can resonate with people. Azalea Bluff is the book. Dennis Hetzel, the author. It's uh, 
several genres sort of mashed into one. You got some sci-fi in there, had some action adventure. You had a nice father-daughter story. Pick it up at bookstores everywhere. He wrote it based on a radio drama by Carolina radio legend Ed Galloway. Again, the title is Azalea Bluff. And if you like audiobooks, and audible.com. Dennis Hetzel is our guest today. Uh, thank you, Headline Books. Thank you, Dennis, for being here today. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure, Burke. And thank you to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Thank you for listening. Thanks for downloading. If you like it, tell a friend to subscribe. And uh, wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast. Bye now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.